Hello and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi and I'm joined by the lad who's still wearing those wet undies after today's incident, Yanatan. Do you want to say hi, Yanni? We can't talk about the incident. I, I Don't get me started on the incident. I literally just ranted to Ravi about the worst laundry encounter I've had in my entire life. I am not going to tell this entire story on the podcast because it's just too long and nobody fucking cares. But some people are just assholes, man. Like For no apparent reason, they just want to fuck with you. And that yeah. extends to the laundry room. Yeah. I mean, I've had that done before to me and uh, I've had to wear those wet undies. So... You don't want to be in that situation. I did eventually get all my stuff dry. It just took a lot longer than anticipated. That is all I will say. If anybody really wants to hear this full story, just like hit me up on Twitter and I, I'm happy to share it. But like, I'm going to love those Twitter interactions, <laughs> but I'm glad you clarified this was a laundry incident. It was indeed a laundry incident and not a wedding of the pants incident. <laughs> All right, so the first thing I wanted to say before we get into some anime news and then the rest of the episode is actually just clarifying some podcast summer-related plans. So Ravi and I are both going to be on vacation. I am going to be going up to Seattle and Alaska with some extended family. So I will be gone starting late June into mid-July. And Ravi is going to a conference and then traveling around in Europe for basically all of July, which obviously makes... It's a bit difficult to make the podcast for those five weeks that we don't overlap. So we're currently preparing a backlog of episodes that we will release on a normal schedule. So hopefully for you guys listening, there will be just absolutely no change. Every other week, you'll get your Bacabanter episode. Should all be pretty seamless. But in case we don't reference episodes that just happened or don't have a lot of news or don't cover news that happened throughout the month of July... That's the reason why. If you notice some like weird breakage of continuity, that's why. But hopefully everything will be pretty smooth, I think. What could happen in one month, man? Nothing. Nothing. No anime news happens over the course of four weeks. <laughs> All I know is that news segment that we record for our first episode back in August is going to be long as shit. But <laughs> I think that's fine. <laughs> It's also going to be really weird to just not record a podcast for like five weeks. Like ever since we started this, we've been doing this pretty regularly with maybe some breaks if one of us is gone, but we haven't been gone for that long where we can't record. So going to miss it. You got to blame COVID for that one. It's going to be the first time I've left the country in so long at this point. Yeah. It's literally been like four years. Yeah. I haven't left the country since COVID either. Um, so first time will be, I think, at the end of the year. It's uh, crazy. All right. Anime news. So a few things happened that I wanted to touch on. The first is that there was a Kyoani event where a new season of Hibiki Euphonium got announced for 2024. Hibiki Euphonium is one of the shows I've actually recently been talking about. I really need to watch. I actually think I mentioned it a few podcast episodes ago. It's one of those Kyoani shows I know I'm going to love, but just haven't gotten around to, especially as a Naoko Yamada directed series. So there's, I think, two seasons out right now, plus a movie, another season coming out in 2024 it's amazing that kiani can just give that much of a heads up for their projects and it just i mean we've talked a lot about kiani on the podcast already and how their schedules and treatment of workers are generally pretty good and so it's just a testament to that that the last thing they made was dragon made last year and it seems like the next thing they're gonna make is this in 2024 that's a really big space between projects but ideally that's what the schedule should be to give people actual time to work on it normally and well. But I am excited for that. And, and once I check it out, hopefully I'll be able to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, as soon as it got released, it really got us thinking about a music and anime episode. So that's hopefully something we'll also get done in the next few months, if not the next year. Yeah, definitely when we get back from travel, we've been talking about 
doing something like that. And then a few other pieces of news. The first is that the Fruits Basket prelude movie that already came out in Japan was announced to be coming to the States at the end of the month. So go check that out if you're near any showings and you're a Fruits Basket fan. I unfortunately will actually be traveling during the only three dates that it is screening. So I will not get to see this. My sister is also coming on this trip, but she's a huge Fruits Basket fan. So we are devastated that we can't see this in theaters and we'll have to catch it uh, when we get back at some point. I doubt Anchorage even has showings, <laughs> even if we wanted to like... Hey, man, you got to talk to the Alaskan anime community up there. You can't just write all of them off. I'll look it up. But uh, yeah, regardless, I don't think we'll take time out of the trip to do that. But if you're going to be around, it's coming out. And then the Eurocamp movie and the new Masaki Yuasa movie, Inuo, that I already mentioned, I think on the last episode, both of those are also got released in Japan already or are getting released very soon. So hopefully we should get English screenings for those in English screenings. Screenings in the United States and other countries outside of Japan. What the fuck is an English screening? I guess a dub screening, but like... Yeah, you love the dubs, I right? I love dubs. Number one dub fan over here. That's all I have. All right. Well, so on today's episode, Yanni and I are going to give a whirlwind tour of one of anime's most hotly debated topics, CGI. We'll be giving a primer on CGI and why studios have begun to favor it more and more, walking through the history of the technique from its origins in early anime to its modern use, and touching on some of the best and worst examples of CGI in the medium. So let's get into it. So Yanni, would you rather see the next season of Monogatari in full 3D CGI or get no more Monogatari ever again? Definitely no more Monogatari ever again. Are you serious? Yeah. I don't <laughs> I don't need monster season and off season ruined for me like that. Absolutely not. I'll I'll just read the novels when they get translations. <laughs> I can't do that. Monogatari 2016. This, you were asking me before this if Monogatari will ever get adapted to its fullest and Situation at Shaft is uh, pretty bad, and you were like, ah, oh, so can't another studio just do it? And I was like, no. Watch like three episodes of Monogatari, and then tell me that another studio could fucking make that. It can't. It just has to be Shaft. Yeah, and has to be Studio Orange team. could make a great Monogatari. That, I mean, I don't doubt that they might be able to do that, but like, it would kind of break the, the standard that's already been set for the series. Also, I wanted to preface that we definitely have injected bits of history into a lot of our episodes already. We have never done a full history episode, but mm -hmm. Ravi has been just absolutely pining for one. So this entire episode that is only focused on history of one topic with injecting our thoughts about that specific focus on all these different shows is purely to please Ravi. So I hope somebody else enjoys this episode and all the hard work that Ravi did researching this. Yeah, daddy finally let me take the wheel today. <laughs> So I'm going to have some fun. <laughs> I let him off the leash. <laughs> why don't you at least outline what the organization of today's episode is going to be? Sure. I don't know why I'm doing that because you set the organization of this episode. but I'm You always well. do the organization. <laughs> <laughs> if listeners haven't noticed by now, there's a set piece to this entire thing. It happens every single time. I was thinking actually when you were doing the opening, like one day we should just fuck with people and let me do the opening because I want to come up with some shit to say about you <laughs> yeah we could april fools 2029 <laughs> damn at least you guaranteed we're making the podcast that long yeah we'll probably um, be dead by then <laughs> damn 
Things got dark fast. <laughs> so for this episode, we're going to be talking about what CGI is and why it's used in anime, giving a little bit more of a formal definition. I think most people listening to this will know CGI and have seen it in shows, but we'll, we'll try to formalize that a bit. And then we'll just walk through different eras that signify different usages of CGI, whether it's a pre-CGI era and the introduction of CGI into anime, whether talking about how that developed early on in the first years of using CGI in anime before it really became widespread and a little bit more mainstream. Then we'll talk about really how that spread throughout the entire industry, and we'll cap off with talking about modern CGI methods and, and some different styles that have been employed. And at each step, we'll sort of be highlighting the main studios that drove a lot of these changes throughout history, and also talking about the landmark shows that they made and what we think of the shows in general, but more specifically the use of CGI in those shows. Yeah, I think it's just a pertinent discussion nowadays because people have very, very strong opinions about is the CGI good? Is the CGI bad? How does it look? And I think we've really fallen into this discourse too quickly. People don't appreciate how good CGI is on the level that it is nowadays as opposed to what it was 20, 30 years ago. And even more than that, it just seems like a lot of people don't understand the utility of CGI in anime, why it's being used by studios. It's a very utilitarian thing, as we talked about with Vanoba in one of our previous episodes. So let's start off by talking about what CGI is and why it's actually used. So CGI stands for computer-generated imagery, and it actually describes the use of computer graphics to create images in art, video games, films, TV, and, of course, for here, anime. CGI is actually an umbrella term. Everybody nowadays seems to think that CGI just means 3D objects within anime, and that's not necessarily true. There are a lot of 2D objects generated via computer graphics, and we see a lot of elements that are not just character designs also being used or created via CGI. To understand why it's actually being used for animation, though, I think it's important to first understand the process of creating anime. I mentioned Vanoba, and you should definitely go check out that episode if you want a more in-depth discussion of how anime is made and what it's like to work as an animator. But briefly, every anime begins with a storyboard, which is just a graphic organizer consisting of the main scenes of a story to help the animation team visualize the work before it's made. If you Google what a storyboard looks like, you can just see that it's essentially the story in its rawest form. You're just highlighting individual scenes that are going to be important for the narrative. Keyframes are then drawn based on these storyboards, and these keyframes illustrate the key points of a character's motion. For example, if a character is throwing a punch, one keyframe would be the point at which the character is fully wound up, ready to punch, and the next would be the point at which the character is fully extended, making contact. In-between frames are then drawn to connect the keyframes together, and these in-between frames are extremely laborious, so much so that anime studios often outsource them to international studios in countries like Korea. And if you can imagine how much work this is, it's actually insane. To draw all the in-between frames for every keyframe just takes so much work. And now I think we can appreciate why it is that animators are struggling and have such a skewed work-life balance because so much work goes into doing these. In the past, actually, all of these frames, in-between frames and keyframes, would have been drawn on paper and then copied onto clear plastic cellulose, but now most of that drawing is actually done digitally. Color is then added to the frames and the different scene components composited to create the final visual product. So as I said, hopefully you can appreciate at this point how much work goes into creating your favorite waifu bait. Well, and specifically the in-between frames, I mean, people often talk about 
that in-betweening is like the first thing you do when you're at the lowest level of the pyramid working as an animator in the industry, trying to sort of work your way up. And then finally, when you're working on keyframes or even up to directing, that's like kind of when you've really made it or you have a lot more freedom to do things creatively. But you're right, the in-between frames are super, super laborious. And just to add a tiny bit of context, you mentioned Van Oba. For those that haven't seen that episode, he's an animator working remotely, not in Japan, on a lot of these projects. He doesn't really do in-betweening. He does uh, a bunch of other stuff, but he gave a really good perspective on how much work it is to actually draw these in-between frames. And then also, just to be pertinent to this discussion, how much utility can be gained from the use of CGI and give a really nice perspective for someone actually working in the industry. And it was just really nice to hear. So I think if you finish this episode and you're interested in this and how this sort of intersects with animators working conditions and rights, I would go check out that episode for a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. The last thing you touched on, hopefully you can now see why CGI is such a godsend for the industry, because it dramatically reduces the number of frames and visual elements that animators need to hand draw. Imagine, for example, that instead of drawing all of the in-betweens for our punching scene by hand, you could just create and manipulate a CGI model or create the keyframes using CGI and let the computer generate the in-betweens automatically. Or for backgrounds or objects, you could just use CGI models or pre-built assets. All of these would significantly reduce the workload for animators and therefore save both time and money for the studios. This is actually an interesting discussion I was reading about online because anime studios are using CGI more often, but unfortunately it's also being used as a means for wage suppression because of the fact that animation studios can use CGI instead of animators and therefore say, we don't have to pay you because you're not doing the same amount of work, which is kind of fucked up. Yeah, it's a, it's a super complex issue and like we're not going to get into all the working conditions that intersect with this, but I do think it's important to mention just how complex it is that, you you know, you think CGI would be helpful and it is helpful for all these animators to have to do less work. But there's obviously all these kind of issues where the studios and more specifically the production committees that really sit at the top are going to try to make the most money possible. And if that means replacing humans with the CGI or shifting their work around so they do just as much work, but on other projects and just increasing the number of anime, that's not a good solution for this either. That CGI is not really actually solving any problems. So it's definitely complex. I also really quickly wanted to mention, you were talking about keyframes and all the different frames that go into animation. I love animation production notebooks. Do you own any or have you ever thought about buying them? For people that don't know, these are basically like art books, really nice large books done with the production of a series or a movie that just have like keyframes and character designs and all these like tiny little drawings that went into the making of your favorite anime. I actually don't own any, but every time I go to a con, whenever I stop by one of the book vendors there, they always have some amazing ones. I think my current favorite was when we went to Anime NYC. We saw the keyframe notebook for the Rebuild series for Evangelion. Oh, yeah. It looks so cool. Yeah, I would really want to own that. I own a Monogatari one, fucking of course. I've been looking recently at a three gatsu one actually the thing is that they obviously all sold out when the series came out in like you know 2016 or 2017 and now you can only buy like the secondhand copies that are like a hundred dollars instead of like 30 so i don't know if that's going to be a purchase soon but i definitely look at these from time to time i don't want to like collect too many but i do love these art books and just getting a, a closer view and owning a piece of the animation for a, a series that you really like i think is special and kind of a nice way to support a show 
Yeah, it's another brief aside, but you can hopefully now also see how hard it is to get the Berserk Deluxe Editions. <laughs> Yanni and I went to Japan Village. Actually, we didn't talk about this. Yanni no, and I didn't. went to Japan Village this past weekend, which is an area in Industry City in New York City which has kind of been built up as an area specializing or featuring Japanese culture. So on the first level, there's a ton of different food vendors and a Sunrise Mart, which is a Japanese supermarket. And on the second level, they have a bookstore and an entire area that's kind of been devoted to Japanese porcelain and a tea room, which is really nice. Yeah, they had a sake brewery as well. Like just a bunch of really cool stuff there. If you live in New York, mm-hmm. you should definitely go check it out at some point. We were also there on like a perfect summer day where it wasn't too humid or too hot in New York, which like rarely happens. And people were just like chilling, reading a book, having their sake. And I was like, this is the dream. This is fucking sick. <laughs> yeah, we we went to the bookstore and we had a good time checking out all the figures and stuff. Yeah. But I literally went there and I go there to every major bookstore that I've been to recently. I always look for the Berserk Deluxe Edition Volume 1, Volume 2, and they're always sold out. I, I cannot find them anywhere, which is like great for Berserk because especially after Mira's passing, everyone has wanted to own the actual materials and read them, which is fantastic, but I can't get them. <laughs> and it's it's so hard to find them in person. Like I, I could probably order them online, but I do want to support somewhere local. Yeah. So The search continues. Yeah. Anyway, back to CGI. So for better or for worse, it's no wonder that CGI is used as frequently as it is nowadays. But how did it actually get to this point? How did CGI find its way into anime to the degree that it has. To answer these questions, we need to time leap all the way back to the 1970s, to the time before CGI used not only in anime, but in film and television overall. My guy just made a Steinskate reference. I did. I feel like one of those obnoxious JoJo's fans is like, is that a JoJo's reference? But that was actually a Steinskate reference. <laughs> I don't know any JoJo's references, so you can help Everything with is a JoJo's reference. You don't need to have watched JoJo's. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for clarifying. You're welcome. <laughs> So the first film to make use of CGI was the 1973 film Westworld, which many of you may know from its HBO series based on the film. Westworld was actually an American sci-fi Western film written and directed by Michael Crichton, who's also famous for the Jurassic Park franchise. The CGI used in the film was in the form of digital image processing, where frames from the film were digitally processed to appear pixelated in order to portray an android's point of view. A number of other well-known films in the late 70s and early 80s also incorporated CGI, such as Star Wars, which came out in 1977, and Tron, which came out in 1982. Have you seen... I'm sure you've seen the original Star Wars. Have you seen Tron? Yeah, I have not seen the original Tron. I've seen the remake, but not the original. Yeah, the original is something that I actually saw when I was young. It actually has a really cool soundtrack, too. Were you going to... So you mentioned the original Star Wars making use of CGI. Were you going to mention the Star Wars prequels? Because that's probably one of the most contentious usages of CGI and green screen technology in modern film, basically. No, I actually wasn't. So if you want to say anything about those... I don't have a lot to say other than that, obviously, a lot of the Star Wars prequels, while I grew up with them, so I have a lot of nostalgia for them, they look like shit. And that's because Lucas was trying to be super ambitious and use all of this technology that just was not ready at the time. And if they had made the Star Wars prequels now exactly the same, the writing would still be bad. But at least it would look a lot better than they look. I just remember some like drone fights, like the big fight at the end of episode one. It looks like it's just like, 
a Microsoft Windows background <laughs> with like a bunch of drones on it. Like, it really looks terrible. And it really is just a too ambitious of a project in terms of the technology for the era. And the reason why the original Star Wars looks so good and still holds up is like, yes, they did use a lot of CGI in parts, but the actual models for the ships and all this other stuff are real objects that exist in real life, just supplemented by a lot of CGI aspects. And it looks so much better, even though those movies are like, I don't know, 20 years older than the prequels. So I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit as we're actually talking about anime, mm -hmm. using technology when it's ready versus when it's not ready and how that has evolved over time. But Star Wars is actually a pretty interesting case because you can directly compare the prequels with the original trilogy. And we're not even going to talk about the new trilogy because fuck that. <laughs> yeah, this is something, I mean, clearly you can see that the CGI debate is an enduring one. For sure. I think it's important to note, as you mentioned, that no matter how good or bad the CGI is, if the writing is bad, you can't salvage it. And so you can't always blame the CGI for the bad movie or oh, you show. Don't, oh, you don't like Anakin just being like, I don't like sand. It's coarse and rough. And it gets everywhere. You think George Lucas is out here writing good romance dialogue? No. That entire movie on Naboo, cancel that shit. <laughs> okay, first of all, people always are like, oh man, I love the racing scene in the first one. Dude, that racing scene took up fucking like a quarter of the movie. Like, you, you what only, was the plot You only here? like it because you grew up with it. Like, I like it because yeah. I grew up with it, but it's not good. <laughs> My favorite part is when Anakin, every one of his limbs is hacked off. And he still survives and becomes a fucking death lord. And Padme, Padme has Dies one child in a fucking futuristic medical society. And she's like, I'm out. I can't survive this. Are you fucking kidding me? Uh, if you want the Block of Enter Star Wars episode, we can do that at some point. Just let us know. <laughs> anyway. So Tron came out in 1982. And it was in 1983, the year later, that we saw the first use of CGI in anime with the film Golgo 13, The Professional. So before today's episode, have you ever heard of Golgo 13? I had not. <laughs> okay. So this is something that hasn't really extended outside of Japan. Golgo 13 is really well known in Japan, but just not outside of it, especially in America. The manga series was written and illustrated by Takao Saito, and it began publication in October 1968 and actually holds the record for the oldest manga still in publication because Saito died last year but requested that it continue to be published even after his death in 2021. Gogo 13 The Professional was actually the third film in the franchise following two live-action movies, but it's still memorable today because of its historic use of CGI. The film follows a professional contract killer, codenamed Golgo 13, who assassinates the son of business tycoon Leonard Dawson. Dawson vows revenge against Golgo and uses his considerable resources to try and kill the assassin, but is still unable to. So people who have seen this film will certainly remember the use of CGI because it's used relatively briefly, but it stands out quite a bit. And of course, that scene that I'm referencing is that helicopter attack scene when Golgo's climbing Dawson Tower to try and confront Dawson. So give me your thoughts on that scene. Yeah, okay. So I don't know anything about Golgo 13. Ravi was just like, I'm talking about this on the podcast as the first use of CGI. Just fucking check this out. So I went and watched the helicopter scene that you mentioned. <laughs> it's available, by the way, on Retro Crush's YouTube channel, which is a really great resource for old school anime clips. They're a streaming service that just does old school uh, anime. By the way, as an aside, about Retro Crush... They have some absolutely amazing clip titles. Like, whoever <laughs> yeah. the intern is that is writing those, 
Give them a raise because one of the GoGo13 clips is quite literally, and I quote, GoGo13 snipes a guy and then goes straight to his girl's house, unquote. (laughs) That's fucking hilarious. And there's just like so many good clip titles. So Retro Crush Intern, you're fucking smashing it. Keep up the great work. I aspire to be as good at social media as you. Okay, so coming back to this helicopter scene, I'll just be honest and say the CGI in no way, shape, or form holds up by today's standards. I think that's pretty expected, given that it's the first usage and that it came out in 1983. I think it's definitely just even that clip is worth watching for any anime fan because it really does contextualize how far CGI has come, both in just like how good the best examples of modern CGI are, but also in even most of the shit that is controversial or that we complain about is like really not that bad. Like you really need to watch this and just look at this like Roblox helicopter like flying around in these office buildings. And I think what I really wanted to say about this, what really stood out to me watching this scene is the difference in the contrast between the CGI scenes and the hand-drawn fight that comes right after. I'm going to sound like an absolute anime boomer right now, but those scenes, the hand-drawn fight scenes, actually look pretty good. Like for something that came out in 1983, that shit holds up pretty well. And that's because of the hand-drawn cell animation. Of course, like there's lots of cuts they use and the action movements are a lot less dynamic than something modern, but it's totally watchable. It looks like it might even be a fun watch. It gives you this like sense of nostalgia for old school anime. And then they're like intercutting with the helicopter chase. And I'm like, holy shit. The difference is like really what is striking so th- those are the two things that like really stood out to me when watching this yeah it's funny that you mentioned that gogo 13 looks like roblox helicopters because when i saw that scene it was so jarring and you're right that it really doesn't fit well with the rest of the hand-drawn animation which actually looks really good what it did is it reminded me of if you've ever played those early ps1 games like metal gear solid it really reminded me of the yeah. video game graphics in that game just hella polygons everywhere basically dude if you look at snake's face in that fucking video game it's literally a flat fucking <laughs> rectangle with some shading for eyes it's absolutely hilarious and that's pretty much what gogo looks like but you know <laughs> So after GoGo 13, the only notable anime to use CGI was Lensman's Secret of the Lens, which came out the year after 1984. You're fucking laughing at that. Yeah, because the fucking creativity of Lensman, Secret of the Lens. Is... It's top tier, man. Good shit. It's good shit. So this was based on the Lensman series of sci-fi novels by E.E. E. Smith. And the movie was actually stylistically influenced by Tron and used CGI in a similar way as we discussed with Golgo 13 to animate objects like spaceships. I know it's not fair because I didn't tell you to go look up Lensman, but have you ever seen this or seen any clips of it? No. No. Do I want to? It's probably the not. same PS1 graphics, probably. It is, honestly. It, it's actually funny because in Golgo 13, they were doing the shit where they were like panning around the helicopters and shit. You could tell they're having fun. Like the animators were clearly trying something new and they were like, hey, look, mom, here's what I can do. And the same thing is true in Lensman because it starts off with these fucking like polygon spaceships coming on screen and there's like some cool lights being played over them. But there were no major leaps in the use of CGI between Golgo 13 and Lensman. After this film, though, it wouldn't be until 1995 that CGI made a noteworthy appearance in anime again. But when it did, it would be in some of the most widely recognized franchises in anime. 1995 was a pivotal year for the use of CGI in both film and anime. Two films actually came out this year that would establish CGI as a technique in film production. 
Can you name either of these? It is, by the way, just before I answer that, pretty wild that we're just time skipping 12 years mm-hmm. here, essentially, from Golgo to this 1995 segment that that's a long time for nothing to happen but obviously if this technology is just getting introduced it, it takes time for it to really get developed and become a little bit more ubiquitous mm-hmm. uh, i know that one of them is ghost in the shell because i know that that is in the episode and it is literally in like every article you could ever find about the history and the use of cgi in anime i have no fucking clue what the second one is <laughs> so uh yeah you're right the first one is ghost in the shell the second nice. one uh, maybe not fair, but isn't technically an anime, and that's Toy Story. That's not fucking anime at all, you bitch. It is to me. It's all relative. <laughs> that doesn't matter. <laughs> it was for sure not only the first Disney movie that I ever saw, but probably the first movie that I ever saw because I was born around the same time. Toy Story was produced by Pixar, and it was the first entirely computer-animated film, as well as Pixar's first feature film. The saga it took to produce Toy Story is actually pretty interesting because it was almost canceled because of creative differences between Disney and Pixar when it came to the plot and character personalities. But as we all know, the film was eventually released and it was immensely successful, earning praise from critics and audiences alike for its inventive use of animation and its storyline. At the same time, an anime film, now famous for its use of CGI, had also just premiered. But unlike Toy Story, it was a box office flop, and that film, as you mentioned, was Ghost in the Shell. So looking back on it now, it's hard to overstate the influence Ghost in the Shell has had on modern media, both in terms of its themes and story, as well as its style in animation. This film inspired numerous filmmakers from the Wachowski sisters that created The Matrix, which clearly uses visual elements from Ghost in the Shell, and we'll touch on those in a minute, to James Cameron, who cited the film as a source of inspiration for Avatar. And within Japan, Ghost in the Shell really was the primal mover for CGI to take off. It was after this point that computer graphics and digital techniques to make animation more efficient would become more commonplace in anime. So a few episodes ago, Yanni and I mentioned that we had seen Ghost in the Shell together, actually, at Japan Society. But at that point, we really hadn't talked a lot about it, and we hadn't given an in-depth discussion of what our takes on it were. So let's actually do that right now. It was your first time seeing Ghost in the Shell, so do you want to give me some thoughts on it before we dive deeply into the plot and some of the other elements? Sure. Just before I do that don't think i didn't notice that you skipped over mentioning the live action ghost in the shell adaptation we will have no scarlett johansson erasure on this fucking podcast i am totally joking for everybody scar joe's overrated i'm not even yeah fu- fuck that shit okay i didn't anyways. say it that hard okay <laughs> i'm not a scar joe fan anyways so as you mentioned i had not seen this movie at all you had seen it a few times right before we went to see it at japan society yeah so ghost in the shell is actually one of my favorite anime films it's one, for me, one of those glaring classics I just, like, hadn't seen until recently. Akira is also in that same boat that I just, like, somehow have an anime podcast and just haven't seen it. I will remedy that soon. But I really fucking enjoyed this movie, especially seeing it on a big screen with a lot of other anime fans there at this really fun event where they had, like, drinks and, and food beforehand was really, really fun. Uh, I'll for sure eventually watch the sequel and Standalone Complex and some of the other stuff in the franchise. As I said earlier, definitely not the live action unless it is like required of me for to do like a live action seen it? anime episode. No, I have not how have you it. not seen it? I hadn't even watched the original. One. So, <laughs> so 
I think the craziest thing about Ghost in the Shell for me, maybe I was just like not fully there when we were watching it, but the film was such a landmark for CGI and anime, as you mentioned, and I didn't even notice that it had that much CGI or that it was so important for CGI. And I do feel like now, especially that we've been doing the podcast for like almost a year and a half, I feel like I am viewing anime through a much more critical lens and I tend to notice these things. Once you've started to develop an eye for it, it's hard not to notice CGI that maybe the average user wouldn't notice or would just pass over. But somehow this just like completely passed me by. I don't know how that's possible. Thinking more about it and comparing it with something like GoGo 13, I think the difference is pretty stunning just with how good Ghost in the Shell overall still looks, given that it came out in 1995. I think that's partly due to the fact that it wasn't used for entire scenes, CGI meaning, and rather it's a little bit more blended throughout. And also partly because I was so focused on the philosophical ideas, the science fiction themes, the serious tone of the story, and trying to work out how I felt about all the interesting dilemmas and thoughts that the movie really poses that I really wasn't like thinking that hard about the animation because of how engrossed in everything else I was. I think there's a lot to talk about with Ghost in the Shell's themes and story that we'll probably save mostly for another episode. I know we're going to talk a bit about it, but like maybe we'll do a Mabaru Oshi deep dive or a Ghost in the Shell deep dive or something like that uh, in the future. But I do think the innovative mix of animation and the digital effects works really well for the setting and the tone of Ghost in the Shell. And I do think it's interesting just to mention that so far, most of the things we have covered in the anime space, excluding the the Toy Story thing that you mentioned for <laughs> no apparent reason, a lot of these early CGI uses are in science fiction or adjacent to science fiction genres. And that's because I think there's such a desire to like show things that are technologically advanced or futures and things that are maybe hard to animate or in the case of something like Star Wars, hard to actually film. So it, it's no surprise that those are the kinds of genres that we get the use of this technology in, but it's cool to see that and then see it sort of expand to, to other genres beyond that. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention actually noticing CGI in films. And I think this is something that I've said repeatedly on various episodes that it's when you start to notice the use of CGI that it often is something that detracts from my viewing experience. Ghost in the Shell is a movie that I watched in the mid-2000s, I think, actually after I had seen The Matrix. But you're right that over the past few years, as we have started to become more critical about anime, it was when I watched it with you again that I started noticing some of these stylistic elements to it and noticing when CGI is actually being integrated into the film. And that's, I think, some of the major difference between this and something like Golgo 13 or Lensman is the way it's integrated was seamless and it was used in very particular areas and it was used relatively sparingly. So I'll talk about all of those elements in a minute. For those of you that haven't heard of Ghost in the Shell, Yanni would probably call you fake anime fans, but I'll give you a brief overview of the film. I would absolutely not. I hadn't even seen it until super recently. <laughs> That's just hypocritical. It's never stopped you before. <laughs> so directed by Mamoru Oishi, who we will do a directorial episode on in the future. Go confirmed. Confirmed. <laughs> Ghost in the Shell is a cyberpunk thriller animated by Production IG. You're watching Haikyuu right now, another great Production IG work. Good shit. And based on a manga by Masamune Shiro. 
It's set in 2029 Japan, in an era in which humans can replace part or all of their bodies with robotic components. Damn, that's so soon, dude. <laughs> yeah, fuck. When is any of these timelines for sci-fi things actually hold true? Because we've been through fucking Blade Runner. We've been I through mean, like... I mean, we just got... Even the newest Blade Runner was Blade Runner 2049. And even now, that doesn't even feel that far away. So. <laughs> yeah. So... We follow Major Motoko Kusanagi, a government agent tasked with hunting down the elusive hacker known as Puppet Master. Because the Major has replaced most of her body with cybernetic parts, the film presents an interesting philosophical discussion which you touched on about what it means to be alive and conscious and where the boundary lies between man and machine. Aside from its themes, which we'll do a deep dive on at some later point, Ghost in the Shell was revolutionary for its animation. It combined traditional cell animation with computer graphics to an extent that had never before been seen in anime, and that allowed it to generate backgrounds, cast lighting, and employ special effects that would not have been done otherwise. When I said that we're going to mention some elements of CGI use in the film, some of the most obvious elements are where we see the computerized world, where we're shown on screen what it would be to look through the eyes of a computer or through the eyes of a cyborg, such as in the introduction when we're tracking the major on our mission. I think that's honestly one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. The first like five minutes, the opening credits are just beautiful. The combination of the animation with this audio... I can sit here and still remember that eerie audio that's being sung over the animation of that body being generated with the Matrix-like numbers being transitioned into letters. That is so cool. And I still remember that as one of my favorite openings of all time. It's really, really good. And I think one of the amazing things about Ghost in the Shell is that you get hit early on, as you mentioned, with the tone and the themes that are going to be explored in the movie. And when I was thinking about the plot of Ghost in the Shell, that's really not the point. Like, I don't know how to state it other than that. But when I finished the movie, I was kind of like, ah, it ended. Hmm. What actually just, like, happened? I'm not sure I, like, completely got the entire plot. But that's not exactly the point. And what is really, I think, thought-provoking about it is that the longer you sit and think about the tones and the philosophical sort of ideas that it poses, as you mentioned, this delineation between man and machine, that's what's great about the movie is that it makes you think beyond the time that you've seen it. It's super memorable in, in a lot of its shots and its animation, but it really leaves you thinking, which I think is is super interesting and valuable. I mean, we talked about that with our Psychopaths episode, and I think both of us are big fans of any science fiction work or work in general that can pose something interesting, philosophical, and, and that will lead to debate or lead you to go seek out other media or just talk to your friends about it that have also seen it. Yeah, I know you're particularly interested in philosophy too. What did you think about the way that the philosophical discussions were actually shown within the, the movie? I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for this question at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be as vague as possible so that you're not going to ask me about specifics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is... Yeah, I don't have anything to say. About that. <laughs> Cut that. Oh my god. Unless you lead in with something interesting, I got nothing. <laughs> all right, all right. Coming back to the difference we were making between the CGI here in Ghost in the Shell and in prior works, I think we can both appreciate the major differences. In Golgo 13, for example, you literally had these helicopters coming in out of nowhere. They were a one-off. In Ghost in the Shell, CGI is blended into the actual cell animation in a very, very distinct way. 
You can see the cell animation and overlaid is the lighting that was generated digitally. Overlaid are the special effects that were generated digitally. I mentioned the optical camouflage, but if you look at that scene again, the aberrations in lighting are actually very cool and couldn't have been done with traditional hand-drawn animation or it could have only been done with a lot of work that digital animation can do relatively easily. So that's what I mean by Ghost in the Shell used digital and CGI in an intelligent way, in a novel way. And that's why after this point, people started to notice this is how we can use CGI to generate high quality animation. So after Ghost in the Shell made a splash in the mid 90s, CGI use became widespread in anime. We saw numerous studios, even traditionalist ones like Ghibli, experimenting with CGI. If you remember, for example, 1997's Princess Mononoke has some obvious uses of this technique when Ashitaka is facing off against the cursed boar god, whose tentacles were created using CGI. Similarly, the castle in 2004's Howl's Moving Castle is an incredible example of CGI use. It was made of over 80 digital pieces that could be rearranged depending on the scene as the castle walked through the countryside. Thinking back now, I didn't notice at all that that castle was made of CGI. I know you don't even like Howl's Moving Castle, so you don't even <laughs> have to say anything. But it's truly one of those things that's blended so well into the actual movie that I didn't notice it at first. It's such a cool element of Howl's Moving Castle. And CGI use there was done so well. I mean, it's the same thing we were just talking about with Ghost in the Shell, that it's taking very specific elements that are hard to hand draw and blending them very smartly into the style. And I think that is really what demarcates these early uses of CGI. I wanted to emphasize what you just mentioned, which is that I think it's really interesting to have Ghibli in this episode. And we're going to, again, struggle with the Ghibli-Ghibli thing, and that's just, like, fine. That's how it is. But they are probably the most traditional of a lot of studios in terms of incorporating modern techniques. I mean, Miyazaki has been on the record talking about this, and so have a lot of the other people at Studio Ghibli. They're just known for that sort of Ghibli look. I don't know if there's any other way to really describe it. And that only comes from this hand-drawn cell animation, but it is noteworthy to see that at this point in time and you know, moving from 1997 to 2004, that even one of the most conservative studios in terms of incorporating CGI started to do it in order to keep up and work on more ambitious things. This is a, definitely a shout out for our Studio Ghibli episode if you want to see us talk a little bit more at length about Howl's Mononoke and a, a bunch of other stuff about the studio. Princess Mononoke is the earliest example that you mentioned. The film is still like a 90 plus percent hand-drawn. It is like very dominantly hand-drawn. But I think it is thought of for its CGI because of the way it is used in the big set pieces with the forest spirit and the demon worms that you mentioned. And Actually, these are not entirely CGI, as a lot of people think. Like, some people think these entire demon worms on the boar were all CGI. And actually, Ghibli went through years of trial and error. I think estimated at around, like, two years or something like that to try to get that scene absolutely right. And I think that's a testament to why that holds up so well, is that they really worked hard to blend the CGI in a way that doesn't interfere with their trademark style. Howls, I don't have a ton <laughs> to fucking say about it's notoriously not my favorite Ghibli movie but what I do want to say is that I think in terms of its art style it's definitely more refined than Mononoke is which is my favorite Ghibli movie coincidentally that somehow our favorite Ghibli movies are like the two that are 
important for this episode, but the art style in Howl's is beautiful and it definitely is a more refined version of what they were able to achieve just seven years earlier in, in Mononoke. And even seeing that progression is, is really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely agree. Oh, one more thing about Ghibli. We can't talk about CGI and Ghibli without talking about Earwig and the Witch. <laughs> Fuck that movie, dude. Why even bring this Which, up? <laughs> so that came out in 2020, and it was Ghibli's first 3D animated film. The 3D animation looks like fine, but probably at the level of like an average Disney or Pixar film, like nothing really that noteworthy. And I think the reason it did so poorly is a lot of the story and the writing Goro Miyazaki it just like doesn't have the same <laughs> feels bad but like does not have the same talent for this as his father does. Damn man, your boy is catching strays and not even here. <laughs> uh, but I think part of it is that that sort of Ghibli look and feel and magic that we're sort of expecting from their movies just wasn't present with this 3D animation. It can be present with 3D animation. It's not that CGI does not allow for this. Sorry for using those terms a little bit interchangeably, but We'll talk a little bit later about fully CGI, 3D animated works that do have a very strong style and appeal to them. But Earwig and the Witch doesn't, and it deviates from what so many people expect of Ghibli, even in their more realistic works that don't have these supernatural elements like Grave of the Fireflies or Wind Rises or Tale of Princess Kaguya. Those are still able to capture that feeling. So they clearly are able to maneuver and get the same sort of level of magic, whatever the fuck that means, regardless of the animation style in 2D or regardless of the themes of the story or how supernatural it is, but it just didn't really work in their first foray into fully 3D animated works. And that was definitely a little bit sad to see. I don't know if they're just going to completely revert or if they're going to try to push on it and they'll get better over time, but... I figured I should at least mention that, even though that movie sucks and we don't want to talk about it. I mean, much. listen, I, I said this before. I'll say it again. No amount of good animation is going to make up for shit stories. And so there are numerous studios well before this point that had been able to do really good CGI, not even just in anime. Like we talked about Pixar and Disney. Since 1993, Disney has been incorporating CGI. We talked about Toy Story, but even before that was Beauty and the Beast, which is truly your favorite show of all time. And... <laughs> <laughs> petition to get every creator from trying to put that into their works no one needs more beauty and the beast content but stop it <laughs> but after toy story pixar has been creating some incredible works sure yeah a lot of it is just all 3d cgi so no amount of good or bad animation is going to make up for a terrible storyline damn poor goro i really want him to be successful and his dad to stop being such a dick to him but I mean, fair, make better movies then. But <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the day, I, I don't think Ghibli should write off the use of CGI. Unfortunately, it has. It's still traditionalist in a lot of ways. And I think Mizaki, if he could have it his way, would not incorporate a lot of CGI into his movies. I, I think that's something that should change. A lot of the animation would be made a lot easier and could still look very good. You can bet that his first movie coming back from retirement that's supposed to come out in a year or two will probably not have dominant CGI <laughs> levels. <laughs> Man, he's to retire already. Yeah, truly. So it was at this point, at the turn of the century, when CGI was taking off in animation, that Studio Gonzo made a name for itself. Before 2000, in all the anime we've discussed so far, CGI was mainly used for backgrounds, some objects like shitty helicopters, 
and for special effects, and it was used relatively sparingly. Studio Gonzo basically said, fuck moderation, and went on to produce Samurai 7, which at the time was the most expensive TV anime ever made because of its extensive 3D mecha animation. And the show will be focusing on Gankotsuo, the Count of Monte Cristo. If you've ever watched Gankutsuo, I don't even know how to say this. Take your, take your crack at it. Gankutsuo? Gankutsuo. That's how I would say it. By the way, you just mentioned how expensive Samurai 7 was. We didn't talk about the cost of CGI. And CGI is crazy expensive to produce specific assets. Of course, the advantage is that you can then reuse those assets potentially if they're backgrounds or recurring pieces. I don't know a lot about how the costs sort of line up over time. I assume it is worth it. And the studios have done the math on this. But just so people know that CGI is actually expensive to produce and not cheap, regardless of how shit you think it looks. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually not something that I know a lot about. I just know that Studio Gonzo, which was one of the premier CGI studios of its time, unfortunately did go bankrupt (laughs) in the latter half of the 2000s. So, uh makes sense, I guess. makes sense that you can't just keep blowing money and expect everything to be okay. What? You didn't buy the Blu-ray for Samurai 7? I've, I've never even seen Samurai 7. Have you? No. Okay. So if you've ever watched Gankuts- Gankutsuo, as your boy says, <laughs> or even some images from it, you'll probably remember it as one of the most visually unique anime you've ever seen. And that's because instead of drawing backgrounds and characters using solid colors, Gankutsuo fills its world with patterns and textures that would be impossible to animate without the use of CGI. The show is a sci-fi adaptation of Dumas's 1844 novel. It's set in the year 5053, which, okay, at this point we can probably say that this might be accurate, <laughs> and follows a French aristocrat, the Viscount Albert de Morcerf, who befriends the Count of Monte Cristo. You think they're going to have French aristocracy in 5053? I call bullshit. It's actually on the moon. So <laughs> so unbeknownst to Albert, the Count was formerly a sailor named Edmund Dantes, who was imprisoned on false charges and who escaped with the aid of a demonic being named Gankutsuo. Albert introduces the Count to French society, providing the Count the opportunity he's been seeking to enact revenge on those who betrayed him. So Gankutsuo was directed by Mahiro Maeda, an animator and designer who has contributed to numerous anime films and movies from Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and Evangelion to Kill Bill and Mad Max Fury Road. I just looked up this guy's background and it's fucking insane how many crazy IPs he's worked on. So in Gankutsuo, Maeda sought to combine Western Impressionism with ukiyo-e, a blended style that was achieved with the use of CGI to composite the visually intricate animation layers. I know that you haven't seen Gankutsu yet, but you said it's on your plan to watch. Is there a reason it's on your plan to watch? I've just heard a lot of good things about it. I don't have a ton to say about Gankutsu, but you're right. It's been on my plan to watch list forever and like pretty highly on there. And I'm pretty sure just from the clips that I've seen and what I have heard about it overall, the reviews that I've read, that it's one of those slightly underrated older works that I'm really going to like, I think, when I want something more serious to just sit and watch and in terms of the animation from just what i've seen of it the combination of of impressionism and ukiyo-e that you mentioned is definitely what sets it apart as one of the most unique looking anime combined with of course the cgi backgrounds that we talked about and i typically love anime that takes risks and 
reinterprets other media and goes with a really bold, unique art style that you just can't get anywhere else. And that's one of the reasons why I love Masaki Yuasa works or why I love Monogatari. I really like visually interesting, risky animation. And Gankutsuo seems like it delivers that and delivers a good story on top of it. So I'm definitely really, really looking forward to watching it. It's just, you know, plan to watch list is long. It's always long. <laughs> yeah, actually, when I was reading about this, one of the things that I was reminded of is one of my favorite directors, Watanabe. It reminded me a lot of Watanabe's style of storytelling, which, especially in shows like Samurai Champloo, is where he shines because he blends modern Western and historical Japanese imagery. And it's very similar to the way that Maeda is able to blend these different designs, these Western impressionist styles with ukiyo-e. I love it when you see these types of styles that are set apart in time mashed together within a single show. That's one of my favorite elements in anime. Mashups in general are one of Ravi's favorite things. Like the amount of times he loses his mind sending me some fan art of characters from one anime being placed into completely different clothing or a different setting. That's absolutely his shit. Yeah, so. absolutely. I was just going to say that, that like even when we went to Japan Village the other day, we were looking through the different figures and there was like a really hot figure of Asuka, <laughs> but also blended within like some athletic wear or like some other random like beach wear or something. And I was like, that's fucking sick. <laughs> but Studio Gonzo was an animation powerhouse in the early 2000s. But as I mentioned before, it actually fell into financial troubles near the end of the decade. It is still producing anime today, I think. It hasn't produced anything since 2019, but it's definitely... This is like the Gainax thing from last yeah. episode. Like, well, exists, but not really. <laughs> so, actually, Gonzo was created from former Gainax members. Of course it was. And so, <laughs> no, no wonder it just fell into some fucking weird disarray. And if you look at the Wikipedia page for it, I'm not going to lie, it is the most confusing set of fucking history I've ever read in my life. Like some human being actually had to clarify with a bullet pointed list what the history is because it's it makes no fucking sense. Every three years <laughs> it changes its name or buys a subsidiary or gets bought by some <laughs> subsidiary. That being said, regardless, it's not the animation powerhouse that it used to be. However, in the 2000s, it definitely was. And the thing that set it apart was its CGI. It spent so much time and money building CGI. And it had some stellar shows. Like, we mentioned two of these. Another one is Full Metal Panic. Full Metal Panic is one of my favorite franchises. And if you watch it, you'll notice that it has mechs. It has cool blending of CGI and normal hand-drawn animation. So, good on them. Unfortunately, they're not doing too hot in the modern era. But... Before we arrive in the modern era and the modern use of CGI in anime, there is one more studio that I want to talk about, and that's Polygon Pictures. So fully computer-animated anime remain rare in the medium, but it's a space that Polygon Pictures has clearly been trying to fill in the last decade. Can we call Polygon Pictures PP? So PP was founded in 1983 <laughs> and has grown into a studio at the forefront of 3D CGI in animation. <laughs> You happy? Yeah, super, super thrilled out of here. It's worked on well-known cartoons such as Tron Uprising and Star Wars The Clone Wars, as well as numerous anime shows and films, such as the second film in the Ghost in the Shell franchise, Innocence. However, their work that I actually want to highlight today is the fully 3D CGI anime Knights of Sidonia, which came out in 2014. You mentioned this. CGI, again, is an umbrella term. 
not all CGI has to be 3D CGI. It's just what's referenced most often today yeah. because most people see shit like the fucking Titans in Ghost in, in Ghost in the Shell in Attack on Titan <laughs> and are like, oh my god, look at the CGI. That's 3D CGI. So that type of 3D CGI is what shows like Knights of Sidonia and Ajin were. And if you look at them, it's going to be uncomfortable for a lot of people. As someone who's not used to watching a fully 3D CGI anime myself, watching Knights of Sidonia is something that definitely took a bit of getting used to. And it's it's really, for me, I know you're not going to feel the same way, but it feels like switching between the sub and the dub. Because it takes a little bit of getting used to. You, you just got to realize that the person is not speaking the language and it's not going to have the same je ne sais quoi <laughs> as watching the sub, for example, Will. <laughs> Je ne sais quoi. So something sounds or looks off, but once you watch it for long enough, it stops being that type of uncanny valley, and instead it just becomes how the show looks or how it sounds. And honestly, I think Knights of Sidonia looks pretty good. The, the show is actually set in the year 30, 30, 3394. God, I don't know why that was difficult for me. A thousand years after humanity was forced to flee from the Earth on giant spacecraft after it was destroyed by the Ghana, a race of aliens. We follow Nagate Tanikaze, a boy aboard the spacecraft Sidonia, as he and his friends defend the last human settlement from the threat of the Ghana using mechs called guards. It's fucking sci-fi. <laughs> When it was released, the anime received favorable reviews for its decision to combine full 3D CGI with a story that's historically Japanese featuring mechs and aliens. It's funny because when I was reading through the background for Knights of Sidonia, there's actually a quote by Hideo Kojima that still makes me chuckle, which is that Knights of Sidonia would be the anime that saves anime because Japanese culture had lost its cool. It's classic fucking Hideo Kojima, who's out here making shit like uh, Death Stranding, a video game that's associated with a two-hour-long animated movie. <laughs> In reality, though, it's a pretty good show that set the precedent for other shows that Polygon Pictures would make, like Ajin and TMS Entertainment's Baki, both of which are also on Netflix. Baki is actually my uh, current lunchtime show, so when I'm just sitting eating <laughs> lunch, I'll, I'll watch Baki. I didn't realize that the show has a full fucking sex scene that's uncensored. Where after that sex scene, this is a spoiler for anyone who wants to watch Baki, but it's literally like Baki has sex and he becomes a fucking god. Like he literally levels up to the fucking like Goku levels where up to that point, there's all these death row convicts that are fighting him and he just immediately loses to literally all of them. But then after he has sex, he walks out of the fucking cabin and he's like, I'm going to take two of you on at once and just demolishes them. And you're like, what just happened? How did this happen? So you do, so you do like hentai. Sparingly. <laughs> hentai adjacent. <laughs> do you have anything to say about Knights of Sidonia or Ajin? Not a ton because I've, again, only seen bits and pieces and clips and not actually the full series. I kind of did want to reiterate what you said that Knights of Sidonia specifically seems to be pretty decently received as a story, which I think is really great. Maybe it's because I've only seen parts of it and I haven't had time to like really settle into the style. The animation doesn't look super great to me. And again, maybe that would change if I actually sat down and, and gave it a full watch. But just upon viewing clips, it does feel a little bit clunky and not super artistically interesting. And Ajin is fairly similar, even though it came out two years later. I think from a CGI perspective, 
maybe you could make the argument that it was a few years too soon compared to what Studio Orange was able to do with fully 3D animation. And we're going to talk about Studio Orange in a little bit. So we can maybe do a little bit more comparison there. Um, but at least I think these two shows are noteworthy because they're definitely a precursor to what Orange has done. Mm-hmm. And I think regardless, the most important point to make here is that it is often worth giving shows a shot despite their art style and that you might actually, like you said, get used to the art style and come to think it's pretty good. But most importantly, the actual narrative of the story might be worth watching for anyways. You said earlier that no amount of good animation is going to fix shitty writing. And I think the opposite is also true to an extent, of course, that you could have a show that you might not just mesh with exactly with the art style, but if the narrative is really good, again, I'm not saying like fucking Knights of Sidonia and Ajin or the pinnacle of anime, but talk about Berserk, sometimes though. it is worth giving those those shows a shot. Baki, Ajin, and Knights of Sidonia all have a similar place in my mind just because I, I watched them around the same time. I'm still watching Baki slowly because um, I don't have lunch that often, unfortunately. Yeah, you are. <laughs> but uh, Knights of Sidonia and Ajin, I watched when they came out on Netflix a couple years ago. And I have to say, Baki came out around the same time, but the fight scenes in Baki just look a lot weirder to me than, for example, the scenes in Ajin or Knights of Sidonia. And, I mean, maybe that's a testament to how good Polygon Pictures is, but it's also, I think, important to recognize that CGI still has its place, and when it's used in a place where it's not fitting well, it just looks weird. Like, when you have characters that are doing fucking flying roundhouse kicks, but then are these, like, 3D CGI blobs, it looks really fucking weird. And the facial expressions are still not that great, in my opinion, compared to 2D facial expressions, which video games, I think, are the area where it's done the best. Some of the games you play nowadays, the facial expressions are clearly done from a model, like a human model. And those look insane. I don't think that's been ported over to anime as much. I don't know what you think about that. I already mentioned Studio Orange. I think they have done some really, really good stuff with the full 3D animation. I think what Studio Orange has done is amazing, but it is definitely more stylistic than realistic, I would say, with Land of the Lusters or with Beastars or some of their other works. And something like you're talking about, like maybe the new Horizon Zero Dawn game, that just looks good. Like actively, it just looks good. It looks realistic. And we haven't really seen that level being brought to to anime. Yep. So the history does bring us now to the present day, the modern era of CGI, where we're going to now discuss some of the best and worst current examples of CGI in anime. So I know that you've been rearing to talk about Studio Orange and you've been rearing to really talk about other studios like Ufotable. So why don't you take this section? I just want everybody to know that Robbie was just like, before this episode, don't worry. I got the outline for this. Just like come up with your thoughts for all these shows. But like otherwise, I got this shit. An hour before recording, he's like, yeah, so I'm just going to transition to you to talk about the modern <laughs> stuff. You have all that recovered, right? Cool. Yeah. All you right. like this shit. <laughs> this is literally your favorite like shit. shit. <laughs> all right. So I think the best way to talk about modern CGI in anime is to preface by saying that there are two schools of thought you could say about this. The first is the blending school of thought where you take really, really nice assets and CG animation and insert it in the correct places to aid in a show's production. For that, we'll mostly talk about studios like Ufotable and maybe a little bit about Mappa, who also kind of does this. The second school of thought is to do what Studio Orange has done and build on these fully 3D animated shows. Really make CGI the centerpiece, the focal art style of any series that they are producing, 
make everything around that art style and make it just look good in an artistic sense, not in a blending sense. So let's start by talking about the first school of thought that I mentioned, which is about blending. And for that, we had to talk about Ufotable. I think many people talk about Ufotable as sort of the peak of animation quality. That's mainly based off of their success with starting out with Garden of Sinners, through Fate Zero, the rest of the Fate franchise, leading up to their current work on Demon Slayer. Look, I love the stuff that Ufotable makes. I think it looks fucking amazing. It does get lauded as sort of the pinnacle of animation when I think that sometimes it is useful to take a step back and think that there are equally impressive ways to create Sakuga that other creators are employing. Who's to say whether what KyoAdi makes or what Ufotable makes looks better? But if we are talking about Battle Shonen and CGI in anime, there is just no questioning how clean Ufotable's stuff looks. I mean, their work on Fate, their work on something like Unlimited Blade Works, when I watched that, it was revolutionary. When I watched that, I was completely blown away. The color palettes used, the rotations of the camera. This is like a very Ufotable thing to do like a complete 360 rotation of a character that's in a fight scene. And I will never get over how fucking cool that looks. So Ufotable doesn't just use CGI. It it doesn't just use CGI in a conventional way. It employs other things like colors, like music, like cameras, like cinematography to accentuate all of the other CGI elements and use them in a way that is blended perfectly into their 2D animation. That's something I think that really sets it apart from other shows that came before it. And I think a lot of studios could learn from the way that Ufotable does it. I actually wanted to start a little bit earlier in the history talking about Kara no Kyokai or Garden of Sinners because I absolutely fucking adore that set of movies. I know you like them as well. We talked about them a little bit in our Guide to Gateway anime episode because you actually recommended it. But Kara no Kyokai is a series of seven films that we have to do a deep dive on at some point. But it's a little bit of more of a niche Nasu series, so I don't know if we'll get to it. I actually think it's the best part of the Nasuverse. Sorry, Fate fans, but like... I do think it's better. The franchise follows Ryogi Shiki, who's a teenage girl raised as a demon hunter with these mystic eyes of death perception, who has to investigate supernatural cases for a detective agency that she works for. The movies are really interesting because they're to be viewed in a non-chronological order, and that's how they came out. And the way in which you view these is that you have to piece together how the entirety of the plot actually comes together. The plot deals with really mature themes such as suicide, rape, murder, etc., but it draws inspiration from a lot of philosophical and psychological concepts. That does kind of mean that the first movie makes no fucking sense because it's completely out of order and the movies do not introduce you in a normal narrative structure to the characters or things that are going on. But I think once you've watched the second one, it's definitely earlier in the timeline. You start to get a little bit more of a feel of the origin of some of the characters. It starts to make a lot of sense. And by the time you hit the fifth movie and then the climax of the seventh movie, that shit really peaks. Like, I do think there are a lot of highs and lows with the series, but the peaks of Kara no Kyokai are super, super high. In terms of the animation, it definitely doesn't look as clean as a lot of the Fate versions do, but it also came out starting in 2007, so quite a bit earlier. I think there are certainly scenes where you can tell CGI work is being done, but all of the building blocks of Ufotable's signature dynamic camera work and style are there. I don't know if you have anything for you that 
you really remember from Karno Kyokai. I specifically remember the fifth movie, which is my personal favorite with how mind-bending it is. And it has this one scene where Shiki is fighting a bunch of different enemies outside an apartment building. That shit looked insane. Like you could tell it's like the early version of Ufotable's style that they were later sort of perfect and refine and fade and then Demon Slayer. But I just remember Shiki just absolutely going ballistic on these enemies. And I was like, anime has peaked. <laughs> like, this is amazing. Also, I fucking love Shiki. Like, I can tell. Absolute top tier waifu, regardless of how much she would murder me. <laughs> yeah, it, it truly is Ufotable that I think back to when I think about why I started appreciating the way the anime looks. I had watched a lot of anime before I saw something like Garden of Sinners or Fate or anything by Ufotable. And one thing I never really appreciated is how useful camera work is in anime, how useful yeah. cinematography is in anime. How hard it is to do it well yeah. also. And one of the cool things that Ufotable does is it does this camera rotation in the middle of something like fights, but it also uses time to its advantage. The way it slows down the camera pan, yeah. the way it speeds it up to accentuate the hype of the battle or to accentuate certain things that characters are doing or characters' emotions is just done so well. The direction is incredible. The cinematography is incredible. And I mean, like you said, Karno Kyokai set that up for something like Fate to eventually expand upon. Yeah, so let's talk about Fate a little bit. Fate really did take a lot of what made Karno Kyokai great in terms of the animation and the CGI and really just refined and perfected it. Fate Zero looks fucking insane to this day for a series that came out in 2011. Like, it is truly amazing that that came out 11 fucking years ago. See, I mentioned this last time and the fact that Girl and Lagan also came out in 2007. <laughs> you cannot fucking compare those two. You cannot compare those two. Yeah, I mean, I would argue they're trying to do different things, but like, if you're trying to say purely animation style, like, yeah, Fate Zero looks better than like most shit that's coming out today. <laughs> that's how it is. Fate Zero still has some of the best fight scenes in all of anime. I don't know if you had any ones that stood out to you, but I always remember Saber versus Caster ending with this like Saber Excalibur moment. Uh, Saber and Lancer's first duel where they're just kind of like trying to figure each other out very early on in the series. Kiritsugo versus Katomine showing us a mage versus non-mage fight was fucking insane. I guess before you answer with your favorite fights, I should explain what fate is kind of. <laughs> like someone oh, that doesn't yeah. know Okay, let me sit back. I'm, I'm going to love this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm giving the TLDR. Trust me, we will do a full fate episode. We've just been putting it off like forever because it's so much to do. But the concept of fate is actually very simple. The lore is not simple <laughs> Said no <at> one ever. <laughs> Every iteration of fate typically follows a holy grail war that has occurred throughout history. And the entire fate universe consists of mages and certain families, which are involved in this holy grail war, where they summon different heroic spirits to fight for them in the conquest for this holy grail that can then grant any wish. That's really the entire basis of fate. So you get this really cool grand royale, grand royale, <laughs> battle royale concept. I'm leaving that in. You get this really cool battle royale concept where you take anime waifu or hot anime husbando versions of your favorite heroes throughout history and their reinterpretations, and you have them fight each other. And that's basically the entirety of fate. The lore is super deep and complicated, but I think the basic premise is fairly simple. Said no one. You're just giving me that look. Yeah, I'm just giving that look because, yeah, that was, it was a good try. It was a good attempt. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. So now that we've done that, did you have any moments from Fate Zero specifically that stood out to you while you were watching it? Uh, I'm not going to lie. I think Fate Zero is actually my favorite Fate. And yeah. what, a, what a non... Every hardcore Fate fan is going to be like, he's, he's, he hasn't read the visual novels. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, I haven't. The reason why is still when Caster gets summoned, that moment where he fucking annihilates this kid. That was yeah. one of the first times I'd seen something that dark in anime. It's truly dark. And then on top of that, seeing the fights between like Lancer and Saber. Lancer, Lancer is my fucking boy. And he gets massacred in every fucking version of Fate. And I hate every it. Every iteration I hate of Fate, it. he gets the short end of the stick. It's, it's always true. <laughs> Watching him do the gay bulg. Oh my yeah. God, that was hot in every iteration. I was just going to say that, like, beyond these fights that we're talking about, there are a lot of really insanely difficult things to animate that make the characters stand out in not just Fate Zero, but the entirety of the Fate franchise. If we're talking about Gilgamesh or Iskandar's noble phantasms or this, like, reality marble that Iskandar has, those are literally, like, let me have every fucking sword in the universe projected behind me or, like, let me have an army of, like, a million men or some shit like that. Like, those are really hard things to animate and Ufotable just seamlessly blends the CGI to to recreate those moments. And that's what makes the scale of fate feel so large. We're giving a lot of really good examples of CGI and the history of CGI, even though we said is filled with some shitty CGI at the beginning, that's to be expected. Is there something in CGI that stands out to you that you hate nowadays? For me, it's certainly this use of CGI to copy a lot of elements. And I understand that that's exactly why CGI should be used by animation studios, because once you build one asset, you can just copy it over a bajillion times and have it there. But oftentimes, studios do that, and it just looks really fucking bad. CGI crowds is something that almost unanimously the anime community hates. It's something that studios have to do it just to be needs utilitarian. To be but... My God, I think one of the worst elements of CGI that I have ever seen in my life is the lizard army in Overlord. Oh my fucking God. I wanted to gouge my eyes out when I was watching that. That or just like, I mean, we haven't even talked about Berserk 2016, but I think we're just not going to. I think we're just not going to. So coming back to Fate, each Fate installment, I think, builds on what Fate Zero laid out. Unlimited Blade Works includes some also amazing standout moments like Emiya and Gilgamesh fighting near the climax or the super legendary fight between Archer and Lancer outside of the church. Heaven's Feel basically gave us movie production level fate with Saber Altar fights. The Berserker one and the Rider one in Heaven's Feel 3 are my personal favorites. I remember we saw that in theaters and the Saber Altar Rider fight, while we did not understand the ending of that trilogy at all that fight alone was worth like going to the theater to see because that shit was fucking unbelievable that was honestly one of the most quiet fates that i'd seen in a long time there weren't that many fights in that movie it was a lot of dialogue it was a lot of plot progression but there weren't a lot of fights i did feel like heaven's field 2 jam-packed the main fights in there and then heaven's field 3 kind of saved them for the climax but Anyways, we're, we're going to do a full Fate episode at some point, so let me Every move on. Every fucking time, your boy Lancer just gets assassinated. I hate He does that. get fucked often. Anyway, Fate looks amazing. I did want to talk at least briefly about Demon Slayer, which we have done before on the podcast. I've knocked Demon Slayer quite a bit for its writing and its character development, which I still think are very lacking and subpar. But there is absolutely nothing 
okay, maybe there's one thing from the movie to knock about the animation, but generally there is basically nothing to complain about. Yeah, I'm talking about that. (laughs) But there's basically nothing to knock about the animation overall in the series. I think what stands out about Demon Slayer is just the added layer of beauty that Ufotable was able to layer on top of its style. I don't really know how else to describe it other than that, but the way that the sword styles each feel like a work of art and a true embodiment of their element makes each battle or each demon getting his head cut off like insanely satisfying. That sound of Tanjiro cutting open the the nape of the nape, the neck of each demon and the opening thread is so, so satisfying. And you basically add that together with the quality of the fights from Tanjiro versus Rui or Rengoku versus Akaza or Tengen versus Gyutaro in the latest season. They really are some of the best fights anime has ever seen from a technical level. I think some of those, the writing could be a bit better. And in my opinion, the best Demon Slayer fight was the really hype moment from season one between Tanjiro and Rui because it did have the best writing and pacing and all of those things together. But from a purely visual perspective, Demon Slayer is truly, truly amazing. Yeah, people love color and people love motion. And I think Ufotable is able to capitalize on both of those things. Demon Slayer is a great example of that because, as you mentioned, the sword styles, the things that I love about them are the way that you see these vivid colors coming together and you see these amazing motions, these water motions for Tanjiro, the electricity for Zenitsu. The way that's able to flow from the sword really gives you this sense of the sword cutting through air, and it's just, it feels good to watch. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty much it I had for Ufotable. I want to very quickly talk about MAPPA because I think they have followed a similar trend to Ufotable in blending the 2D and 3D animation styles. I will say in a much less refined manner than Ufotable does and with more mixed results. I think they have some real hits, something like Doro Hedoro using fully 3D art style that really fits exactly the grunginess of the show is just really, really good. Like Doro Hedoro, the way it looks and the way the CGI is used in there, a perfect combination. And then we see something like Jujutsu Kaisen, which is a really, really nice action shonen where I think they've used the blending techniques very effectively to create a lot of the dynamic camera work that Ufotable is able to get, but just in Jujutsu Kaisen. I think if you can contextualize the CGI, it just fits better and you don't notice it as much. In Doro Hidoro, it just works because you're already in a very surreal world. And so it's not surprising that you have these 3D CGI characters or things like, you know, Emu's, Enu, Emu. The fuck is his name? Emu, I think. Emu. The mushrooms, like the use of the yeah. mushrooms coming out into the world, you're just like, wow, I mean, this the, is fucking surreal. The fucking protagonist has a lizard head. Right, like, right, right. You know? So so when you have something like a 3D CGI being used there, it's like, okay, this is a stylistic choice. This looks very cool. Coming back to, this is going really far back, but coming back to the difference between like Lensman and Golgo 13, I think this is why people appreciated Lensman just more because the stylistic use of CGI in that show was in moments where you'd be in these like surreal space battles or out somewhere that's not that's not tangible. Like in Golgo 13, you know what a helicopter looks like. You know what people in buildings look like. Yeah. When you have a fucking toy helicopter rotating around a building, you're like, 
Yeah, that doesn't look too good. When you have a spaceship out there with like fucking weird blobs on it, you're like, yeah. okay, I can't imagine what that looks like anyway. So I guess this is what it looks like. Exactly. And so I think Dorhedoro and Jujutsu Kaisen are both examples of MAPPA in different ways using CGI super well. I think Attack on Titan is probably somewhere in the middle, like drawing a lot of, for sure, overblown criticism, also being necessary for the large-scale production that requires these fights between enormous titans. Actually, one of the MAPPA works that I think is the least effective in terms of its use of CGI is unfortunately a show that I love, which is Zombieland Saga. And... The show normally looks great. It looks totally fine. And then they cut to this idol performance or dance number that is fully CGI and it's so jarring and not pleasing to look at. And I know that dance routines are notoriously so hard to animate and there are so many moving parts and so many different characters and a lot of idol shows do this. But personally, I prefer just the mix of small bits of 2D animation and still cuts. For example, Kongming is airing this season and other music shows have done this as well, where they just say, okay, of course we can't animate every performance. We'll just do as much as we can in the moments where it matters and otherwise use stills with good music overlaying. I much prefer that. I don't know how you feel about it. That doesn't break my immersion. Whereas if I see fucking five zombie girls in fully 3D animation, I just like instantly Pop don't care bone. anymore. <laughs> no, <laughs> the opposite. Uh, uh yeah, I agree with you. I didn't like those transitions in Zombieland Saga. I, just like you, hate it when you can notice that something is in CGI and the CGI just looks bad. It's hard to operationalize what bad CGI looks like. Yeah, I think it totally is. If you can notice it in a way that you don't like, I think that makes sense. I don't even know if we want to touch on this topic, but the CGI in fucking Attack on Titan, I think was fine. I didn't notice it as much as other people seem to do. It didn't make a difference to me, and therefore it didn't look yeah. like bad CGI to me. I mean, I can sympathize with the people who don't like it and don't think it looks the best. I think it's still pretty good CGI and the rest of Attack on Titan is so good that you should just not care that much about it. And to say, like, anybody who goes to an animator or a studio complains and sends death threats over fucking animation style, like, you need to log off the internet forever and not care about this that much because like, just don't do that. Like how hard is it to not do that? Oh, All right. So the last thing I want to talk about is the other school of thought within the world of modern CGI, which is taking that 3D animation and really making it the centerpiece of the art style, which is what Studio Orange has done primarily with Land of the Lustrous and Beastars. The rise of Studio Orange over the past few years is pretty much what has made the anime community collectively agree that a completely 3D show actually looks good. Not with caveats, so not say something like it's good for CGI, not that it's good blending, but literally just full 3D animation that genuinely looks aesthetically and artistically pleasing. It is hard to get the anime community to agree about anything, and it's especially hard to get them to agree about anything with regards to CGI. And so it is pretty amazing that Orange has been so critically acclaimed for its shows. I'm personally so thankful that we have a studio that actually decided to take 3D animation and use it in this way, because what I think it does is show that the technology itself isn't what's limiting, but that it can be used to really effective artistic direction with the right projects and the right creators behind them, which is something that you had already mentioned earlier. Watching Beastars was actually the first time that I watched a fully 3D CGI show and didn't notice it for quite yeah. a bit. 
Beastars looks really good. Beastars looks incredible. Land of the Lustrous was, I think, a momentous show. Everybody was talking about this show at the moment that it came out, saying how gorgeous the animation yeah. looked. I mean, just think about that f- first scene of one of the gemstone humanoids running across the field with the camera, like tracking her from behind mm-hmm. and then panning out as she like jumps with the background of the moon behind her. I will never forget the first time I saw that mm-hmm. shot mm-hmm. with the music just being like, wow, that looks that looks fucking amazing. <laughs> I remember that exact scene and the way that they're able to play with the hair colors and the lighting on there, the way they're able yeah. to show when limbs break off, the way their arms fractalate. And it's like, it yeah. just looks incredible. Beastars, I think, took all of those elements and just brought them to the nth degree. That show, in terms of its storyline, in terms of its animation, in terms of the music, in terms of the romance, they're all solid. And so it's just yeah. a really fun watch all around. Yeah, I think Beastars is... I, I love both shows. I think Beastars is a little bit of a mixed bag. Like, it has some really interesting characters and development in this, like, full animal setting. I think it sometimes tries to bite off more than it can chew with this mix of genres that sometimes doesn't fully land. Like, if you remember from the second season, it's trying to cram together, like, high school dynamics with this murder mystery, with this mafia plot, with, like, all these different elements. And I'm like, is he going to try to become the B-star or not? (laughs) The thing is, at the end of the day, I don't really like B-stars that much. I know you don't. But I can at least give it what it's due when I say that it's a good show in terms of its production. You mentioned the fact that it's not computationally limited anymore. This is something that I just don't understand with Studio Orange. And maybe I just don't understand with the amount of resources it takes to do this and whether other companies just aren't devoting the time and resources it takes to do this. But it must take a ton of computing power to generate that much amazing 3D CGI that looks that smooth. When I was talking about Toy Story, when Toy Story was being created... The amount of time it took to generate the animation for that was mind-boggling. I think Pixar at that time could only render 30 seconds of the movie per day, and it's a 77-minute long movie. That's fucking crazy. And I know since 1995, computational resources have obviously improved, but to generate something that looks like Beastars must take so much time and effort. I'm sure it does, and... If you look at how much anime Orange produces, it's not that much. Yeah. Really, it's Land of the Lustrous and two seasons of Beastars in what, like five or six years? That's not that much. And it probably does have a little bit to do with how intensive it is. I talked about Beastars, which you don't like that much. Land of the Lustrous, I personally am fucking dying for another season of. The manga is really beloved and actually the same week that Hunter Hunter announced was coming back, Land of the Lustrous got that same announcement people were super excited about it obviously got a little bit overshadowed naturally (laughs) but i really felt like it was kind of just getting started with its story and its protagonist foss and these gemstone humanoids and their fight against the lunarians i was really excited to sort of see where that went and where the mystery and the conflict went so i really hope orange will eventually when they're done with b stars i think they're doing a third season of it i hope when they're done with that they'll come back to land of the lustrous but We'll see. I think at the end of the day, both series really show that you can actually make really good anime outside of 2D productions. And especially in Land of the Lustrous, the fights look really good. And I think action was one of the things that I think was difficult 
especially difficult to do in fully 3D animation. So maybe we'll talk more about these shows at some point. Maybe hopefully they'll they'll come back. But I really, really like what Orange has been making and being creatively daring in the way that they are. And so even if they don't come back to Land of the Lustrous, I for sure I'm excited for whatever project they pick up after this. I gotta be honest, I don't like Land of the Lustrous that much either. Yeah, well, we're allowed to be wrong. We're all so. wrong. <laughs> you bitch. <laughs> Again, I can give it what it's due when I say that the production is extremely good. It looks amazing. Storyline is cool. But the major problem I had with Land of the Lustrous is I think season one was just too premature for me to make any solid comments about the storyline. There's not a lot that actually yeah. progresses with our understanding of the Lemurians and what the conflict yeah. is between the two. And we get introduced to a lot of characters, but... At the end of the day, a lot of their character development is still pretty shallow, except for the main girl and I think the red-haired girl. So yeah. there's just not a lot of other characters that are really given the the time that I would like devoted to them. I, I completely agree with that. That's why I want a second season. So it sounds like you also want a second season. <laughs> yeah, I love a second season. It was a bit uncanny valley to start off because it was one of the first fully yeah. 3D CGI animals that I watched. And I was like, yeah. what the fuck? But then I started watching Ajin, watched Baki, and whatever. And, and now we're here. Yeah. Gotten a little bit more used to it. Yep. All right, should we wrap up? Yeah, so I had a couple of interesting questions to ask you at the end of this. And I know you pushed this off for as far as you could. But what do you think about the debate, the heated debate within the anime community about CGI? Do you think that there is a rationale for it? And do you favor one side or another? We touched on this a little bit in our mailbag episode because someone asked us about cgi and anime and we had a mailbag episode yeah are you serious did i just black out yeah i guess that was our last episode of the year of last year what the fuck okay. is this when i had covid this might have been when i had covid yeah i think it was damn it's COVID. affecting my brain oh my god we <laughs> did have a mailbag holy shit <laughs> all right so rami doesn't remember we talked about this in our mailbag but i I wouldn't say I take a side. Oh, I think yeah, it's coming back to me. <laughs> I'm glad he's getting it. I wouldn't say I take a side. I think I understand the need for CGI in anime. I think there are lots of examples now, especially of how good it can look, both when it is blended in, when it's used smartly, when it's used as the centerpiece of a show. And I think it's good to see more CGI being employed in ways that are aesthetically pleasing. Either you don't notice them at all, or they actually enhance the show and are part of the show's style. Of course, we still see a lot of s shitty CGI, and I don't like seeing it just as much as other people, and sometimes CGI does make me lose immersion that like, kind of sucks when I notice it. Ultimately, if it's helping animators and it could be used well, I... I'm obviously a huge proponent of it. I think, unfortunately, what you mentioned at the beginning holds true in that it often seems like it would be helping the animators, but probably doesn't help them that much in the end because they still are crazy overworked. So it's not this like one-stop solution for working conditions for animators, of course. But yeah, that was a little bit rambly, but I have a lot of mixed feelings and I think I'm, I'm generally okay with it when it's used well. That would be the DLTR. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I fucking hate people that are out here being like, CGI is the worst thing that ever happened. Animate has no place in anime. That's just not true. All right, I'm going to be honest with you. That's just not true. You're taking a stance that has no fucking rationale associated with it. People out here that are like, I'm going to drop Attack on Titan because it started incorporating CGI, you're a fucking moron. 
I mean, any extreme reaction like that generally is just unwarranted. Like, there's no yeah. nuance in those opinions. But right? unfortunately, those are the loudest voices in the field sometimes. And, and a lot of yeah. people are swayed by those. I don't think those are correct at all. I think CGI definitely has its place within animation. I think there are some stellar examples of it. And uh, across its entire evolution, as we talked about, CGI has gotten better and better. People have started using it in interesting, innovative ways that are elevating anime. All the way from Ghost in the Shell, you can still go back and watch Ghost in the Shell. Then you move all the way up until now, seeing mech shows, seeing the way that it's done incredibly for 3D CGI for mechs. Anime definitely has a space for for CGI in it. And yeah. I think it, even if it's not 3D, even if that's not your thing, the way it's used for lighting, for textures, for backgrounds, for buildings, for all of these other objects, there's definitely a space for it. And I, I'm really looking forward to where it goes in the future. And that actually touches on the second question I was going to ask you, which is, how do you think CGI can improve from here? Where would you like to see it? Yeah, so I think one of the the easy answer to that question is what you said earlier. Things that still don't look that good as a standard in the industry will almost certainly get better. Things like CGI crowds will probably get better over time as the technology gets even better. So I think just blending things more naturally, using assets that are potentially jarring, that look cleaner, that will all be hopefully in some amount of time relatively seamless if we could get something like idol dances in Zombieland saga that actually look good that would be fucking great i think it might always be a little bit jarring in the transition so i don't really know about that but i think what i am most excited for is that i think when we talked about the modern era and these sort of these two different approaches to cgi of course things like what ufotable makes and its blending will continue to get better but it almost feels like we've reached a peak with that. Like, how much better can it look? <laughs> you know, like, I'm sure it can, but it already looks fucking amazing. What I am excited about is people using the CGI and the technology to make really interesting artistic choices. So if we could get more than just Studio Orange making really interesting 3D animated shows, or at least integrating it into their shows, like what MAPPA did with Dora Hidoro, that's the stuff I'm really excited about. I'm excited for it to open up new and exciting art styles and creative choices for creators. And th that's really what I'm most interested in, I think. Can we just get one adaptation of Berserk that is not shit? <laughs> just please, just one time no. in the chat. <laughs> I mean, I think the original, the very original movie that's just kind of the prologue the movies are is fine. relatively okay. well-liked. Yeah. I'm not talking about the movies. I'm talking about the shows, but <laughs> I'm kind of joking. Uh, I'm not really. Not. But <laughs> <laughs> what I'm really looking forward to and where I think it could go further is something I mentioned before, which is the use of facial expressions. Facial expressions mean a lot to me when I watch anime. It's something that I look at a lot. One of the areas where I think CGI and anime could pull a lot from is to go back to its roots and to look at how video games have evolved. CGI in video games is at heights that I could never have imagined. I mean, having played video games for my entire life, I remember, again, back to those old Metal Gear Solid days. And now you look at things like the Unreal Engine 5 demo, which if you haven't seen this, literally pause this podcast, even those two minutes left, <laughs> and go fucking look at the Unreal Engine 5 demo on YouTube. It is mind-boggling. Okay, maybe just finish the podcast first. <laughs> 
Maybe just finish the podcast. But it is mind-boggling the way that they're able to generate assets that look so real, the way they're able to generate facial expressions that look unbelievable. And I know anime has a style to it. I know that anime is famous because of its style and how that's different from Western animation. But I think there is a medium between the two where we can start incorporating higher quality assets, higher quality facial expressions, higher quality character designs that we haven't yet seen before. And I'm sure that will happen. I think anime just needs to look at spaces around it that are evolving, I think, a little faster in terms of CGI. All right, very last question. Rapid fire. What's your favorite example of CGI in anime? Just pick one. Recommendation time at the end of the pod. Redline. <laughs> we actually haven't talked about Redline. We're going to save that for next episode. <laughs> Honestly, All right, Fate Zero. Fate Zero. Okay. But if we're going to talk about a place where animation is blended with the CGI, Redline. Those fucking cars look Redline does cool. look amazing. Yeah. Mine's Land of the Lustrous. That wasn't fucking obvious. Or Garden of Sinners. One of the two. Go check yeah. them out. All right. That's been it for us in this history-filled episode about cgi if you enjoyed this format and us talking a little bit more about history we've had some ideas to do other history style <laughs> episodes i don't know what we're going to get to them what if but i said darling in the we, franks <laughs> I would press stop recording <laughs> <laughs> but if you like this format the point is we have other ideas for history style episodes so let us know if you enjoyed this and if you'd like us to do uh, more of this type of content because definitely a little bit different than the style we have done for other episodes next episode we are hopefully going to have a guest on the podcast if that order changes around because of the way our backlog is looking then you'll get something different but for now i think it's going to be a guest otherwise subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast apple podcast spotify stitcher anywhere like that please leave us a five-star rating and a review either on apple Podcasts or on spotify check out the podcast on our twitter at bachmanterpod or on our website bachmanter.com and that's been it from us today. So we've been the Bachmanter Lads. We'll catch you all in the next one. Bye.